book that I had heard recommended for some time. Uh, the book is called Behind the Beautiful Forevers. And the book is by a journalist who wanted to get behind the, the um, wanted to get into the slums of India and wanted to bring to people the injustices and just the kind of unfiltered, what is it like to be in a position like that? Uh, the title of the book comes from the slum in India that, that this journalist was able to get in was behind a wall that separated the airport from the slum. And I, I wanted to read the book because I've been to Mumbai twice and I have kind of a mental picture of what was talked about there and have seen the slum, was at the airport, and uh, understand the separation that existed. But this wall that is, is there to separate the airport from the slum is to keep those who are at the airport from seeing the slums. And there's an advertisement that is on that wall that is for ceramic tiles. And these ceramic tiles are to help your home to be beautiful forever. And the irony of the situation to the journalist is you have behind these walls something that they don't want people to see because it's not beautiful and it's certainly not forever. But the irony is that even those of us who do not live there uh, have lives that are not beautiful and are not forever. And so uh, that's, that's kind of the thrust of the whole book. It's not a Christian book. Uh, but uh, she then follows families that live in those slums for a period of time. And a, and a guy who is, is every day a young man, if you were a teenager uh, there, then you would be uh, probably doing something like what this guy would be doing in going to places, scavenging for plastic bottles to be able to turn in, to be able to hopefully gain enough for a meal uh, for that day. Um, just, it's a hard book. It's a hard book to read. It's a hard book to digest and process, uh, but one that I thought was, was very profitable to read. When we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, I can't help but to think that what Solomon is doing is, is living the life that the people behind the beautiful forevers dream of. So in, in that book, Behind the Beautiful Forever, one of the people, his, his desire was to grow up and to be a waiter in the hotel restaurant because that was the lap of luxury for him. And so he, he was working to try and do that, to try to somehow get beyond the wall to, to be that. I think that what Solomon is trying to show us here is that in the heart of every one of us, there is this longing for what could be. What, what would satisfy me? What would it be that I should, I should be targeting or living for? And what he's telling us is kind of a downer. Because what he's saying to us is that whatever that thing is that, that you're striving for, if you get there, it's vain. It's fleeting. It's like trying to capture smoke. It's temporary. It's not going to ultimately satisfy. I mean, he's, he's, he's doing that in a number of different ways. 
And so at the end of chapter 1, he actually comes to a couple general conclusions. Here's the first one in verse 15, chapter 1 and verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Do you know what I think of when I think of what is crooked cannot be made straight? I think of a fork at the diner. <laughs> Have you ever looked at a fork at the diner? And maybe it's just because I've had uh, some, some appointments at diners recently. They're always like more flat than the average fork. And I used to be bothered by it. I used to try to straighten it out. Have you ever tried to straighten a fork out? You make it worse. And I just stopped doing that and, and tried to learn to eat with a more flat fork. <laughs> because it's hard to straighten something out once it's been bent a certain way. And Solomon's giving giving acknowledgement to that, except with life. It's hard to straighten some things out. And as a matter of fact, what he's saying is, some things will not be straightened out again. And what, what, what is that? That's kind of cryptic to say that. What he's saying is, is that there are some things in life that are not going to be figured out. They're not going to be bent back. And you, as a person, are going to have to live with that tension. Now, we don't like tension. We do a lot of things, including yoga and Pilates and listening to music and trying to calm ourselves and all kinds of ways to alleviate tension. But what he's saying is there are going to be things in life that you are not going to figure out. But he's not going to just launch it out there and say, well, I guess it's a big question mark. He's going to come to some conclusions for us to latch on to. But before he does that, he's going to give us some other thoughts. So verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation. You know, one of the things through life that we've always thought, and it's a natural thought, is if I don't, if I don't, if I don't understand something, I need to know more. <laughs> Education is the key to understanding in order to fix things. And you know what? In a lot of cases, it is. I mean, if you've got something broke at home, you get on YouTube, you talk to somebody, okay, I know more, now I fix it. But what he's saying is that in reality, in the big issues of life, the more we know, the more it exposes us to the injustices of life. So the more you know about things, there's things that you weren't exposed to before. So, for example, I, I read that book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. I mean, the first time I went to India and I saw the slums, I was so struck by that. I, I mean, I was, it was genuine culture shock to me. And I snapped a few pictures so that I could show people back home and I could, show, I could talk about my trip and all this kind of stuff. And then I read this book, and now I'm exposed to what's going on. So the more you know, the more you're exposed to things that are crooked and cannot be made straight. I think in some ways it may be easier to convince someone living in the slums of Mumbai of the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Because they, they, they've, they've hit what we would consider to be perhaps the bottom of life. I think it's easier sometimes to convince somebody like that than to convince us. Um, because we have layers of, of comforts in our life. And, and so we would come to a book like this, 
And here's the way even my mind works in this book. So Solomon is saying, vanity, vanity is all is vanity. And my mind goes like this. Maybe yours has too. But I got my work. But I got my kids. Doesn't that profit? But I got some grandkids. I mean, I can't. I mean, what grandparent would have all their grandkids together and say, kids, I've really thought about you kids. And I just really, you know, grandma and I love you, but vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And you just walk out of the room. I mean, what kind of grandpa would you be doing something like that? Is it really the truth that van? And I just want to say this that is the point that Solomon's making. Now, before you argue back and say, well, maybe he just had a bad day. Maybe he just, you know, da, da, da. listen, he's wanting us to get this point so that he can get to something else. So what I've encouraged us to do as we go through the book is to be able to let it come at us as it's intending to come at us. So before you look at a point and you start arguing the point and saying, yeah, but my grandkids do bring me pleasure, and so I don't know that he's saying what he's saying is right. Just, just take what he's saying and say, okay, vanity, vanity is all is vanity. Because he is getting to that point. Chapter 2 is, is an interesting chapter because he's going to now specifically start targeting some things he did to test this matter of pleasure. And then at the end of the chapter, he's actually going to get to a point. And it's actually a positive point. So we got to pay attention. He's going to say something positive, but he's going to go through a whole chapter here of the things he tried. And I want to, under this first part, this first section, call this a relentless and restless pursuit. Because... It's, it's not like one of these things was going to satisfy him. So he goes here, he goes here. It's just, he, he wants us to get the point. This is a relentless and a restless pursuit. So let me go through these verses and be commenting on them. So look at chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. Now, before we judge him, before we judge him and say, well, that, you shouldn't say stuff like that. We shouldn't say, enjoy yourself, you know? Before we judge him, I want you to think about what he's saying here. Nearly everything we do has a string back to our own personal happiness and satisfaction. Nearly everything we do. And it's not like selfish to be that way. It's kind of the way we're made, all right? So, for example, you probably feed yourself. You eat. Why do you eat? Well, there's a measure of sustainability of life there. And you probably eat some of the things you enjoy eating. We eat what we like. Let's go to the opposite extreme. You diet. Why do you diet? Well, we diet because we want to look better, we want to feel better, we want to be more healthy. It's nothing selfish necessarily about dieting, but we, we do that and it comes back to ourselves, our own satisfaction. We drive to the store to get something we need. Uh, we get something we need for our kids so they don't complain, so that doesn't get on our nerves. And so there's, there's so many layers of what we do because it comes back to us. So before we judge him, 
and saying, enjoy yourself. What he's trying to say is, there is a root in all of us that we do what we do for our own personal satisfaction and our pleasure because we're kind of made that way. Now, I want to bring up something else here that I think is really interesting that I read from an author who asks this question. I think it's good to draw this out. So what is the difference between what Solomon is saying here, enjoy, he says, I'm going to enjoy myself and what the younger uh, son did in the prodigal son story? Because that's kind of what he did. (laughs) He said, I want my money now so I can enjoy myself. And we know from that story, that's not the way we're supposed to live. So do we have another, do we have a prodigal king here? And the answer is no, so let me give you some differences between what Solomon is saying and what the story of the prodigal son is saying. The prodigal son gorges on pleasures because he believes this is his right. This is his right. He sells what belongs to him in order to get women and drink and friends and happiness and whatever he can buy because he believes That is his right. The preacher, the one who is talking here, Solomon, seems to doubt whether this interior hole that is in his life can be filled. So he's not approaching it as his right. By wisdom, this is why he keeps saying by wisdom and by wisdom, and we tried to define wisdom last week as skill in living. The prodigal son was not looking how to skillfully live. He was looking to define his own morality. Solomon is testing whether this hole in his heart can be filled. The prodigal consumes what is under the sun. The preacher contends with what is under the sun. Two separate things. The prodigal loses his senses and must come to them again. That's what it says in the text. He loses his senses and must come to them again. The preacher keeps his wits about him. That's why when he says he tests himself with wine and yet he had his wisdom that he had his wits about him. He is testing this. It's totally different. So we cannot look at this and say that this is... Blessing upon a hedonistic life. (laughs) I can kind of just go out and live because Solomon did it, and therefore I can do it too. Verse 2, I said of laughter, and here's where he begins this journey. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So let's just kind of envision what he's talking about here. So he goes out from the palace, which is the end of chapter 1. He comes down from the throne. He goes out from the palace, and I don't know whether he disguised himself or he looked like a regular guy, certainly set off his crown and his rings or whatever he would have worn and put on normal clothing. And he goes to a venue where there is a comedian. So this kind of thing would have been common even in that day, to have some venue of, of hearing a comedian. And I can envision him sitting there and he's ordering glasses of wine. And he's drinking wine. He's doing what people do. And he's listening to the comedian. And he's coming to the conclusion that this is not ultimately satisfying because there's laughter and there's jokes. But those jokes and those, that laughter dies down. 
Jokes that worked last year don't work this year. Jokes that were so hard worked on by the comedians sort of are out there and then they have to come up with a new bit. I read a few years ago the book about a autobiography about Dick Van Dyke. Um, grew up kind of watching the reruns of some of Dick Van Dyke, kind of liked him. I remember reading that book, and it's not that he's lived a poor life or anything, but I remember being duly unimpressed with his life because even though on screen he was always such an upbeat, sort of a happy guy, there was sort of this constant pursuit of something else because we see what Solomon saw, that comedy ultimately does not satisfy. Well, He leaves that venue in verse 4. He goes to another venue. This one probably took a lot of time. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. This is a guy who is like the foreman of a growing city. This is actually happening, okay? This is not something he's symbolically talking about. He's actually doing this. In Jerusalem and in that area, when he talks about water and fruit trees and vineyards and all of that stuff, you're talking about being on, in essence, a hilltop, a mountain uh, that's very dry and trying to get water to that source. This guy is a master engineer, at least he's employing master engineers, and he is duly employed. I mean, he is, he is gainfully employed. He sees the success of what he did. He can walk out. He can pick a, a mango off the tree and eat it. And it is a good mango. And he had something to do with that. But it doesn't satisfy. Ultimately. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. Had slaves who were born in my house. Great possessions of herds and flocks. More than any who were before me in Jerusalem. What we have here is an unfiltered glimpse into the life of a king in ancient times. You know, I think it's interesting. Sometimes the Bible does not comment on the morality of something. So, for example, you'll read in some of these passages where so-and-so king had multiple wives, and there's no comment or asterisk that says, by the way, don't do that. (laughs) We have the entire Bible that comments on these things, Slavery that's mentioned here is not condoning slavery. If anything, what he's pointing out by by divulging that is that in ancient times when cities conquered cities, the the inhabitants of a conquered city were then forced to become slaves in the worst conditions possible rape and all kinds of other things took place in those situations and that what he was doing was actually taking people and he was putting them on a level where he was treating them well to the point where he's telling us they had families. So the Bible is not condoning this activity or saying that this activity is good activity that we should follow. He's merely giving us a glimpse into what it was like to be a king in those ancient times. And he's saying that even if I operated myself as a king at a higher level, it did not satisfy. David Gibson, commentator, says, "...the preacher, after all his projects and possessions and pleasures..." have run their course, realizes he's only left with sandcastles on the beach. I like that quote. 
It's like these elaborate sandcastles are all over the place. Humor and, and this and that and all this other stuff. But it's just sandcastles on the beach. I failed to mention verse 8. I should mention because it's kind of a catch-all verse with a lot of stuff in it. Uh, he says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. So he's the treasury department. <laughs> and he controls all of that. He says, I got singers. So, so he didn't have Spotify on his phone. So what he did is he got the best music of the day of all genres. Live. <laughs> in front of him. He said, I got all that stuff. I got the singers, both men and women. And the Bible is very discreet in what it says here, and many concubines, and all of the pleasure of that, the delight of the sons of men. He had it all. I mean, around every corner, this guy had everything that the heart could desire, and yet still it was sandcastles on the beach in relentless and restless pursuit. Well, he actually comes up to something here that is going to really stop him in his mental tracks. An inescapable problem. Look at verse 10. He says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. So there's a recognition that there is some satisfaction that comes with building a city or going to hear a comedian or trying to orchestrate things well. He says, my heart had pleasure, and this was my reward for all my toil. That was the reward. But he says it's fleeting. He says it's, it's, it's vanity. And you say to yourself, why? Why does he say that? Look at verses 14 and 15. This is his conclusion. This is why it's vain. The wise person has his eyes in his head. Don't you like that phrase? Wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Obviously, metaphorically. It's not that fools are walking around in pitch black. But, but fools cannot see. And he said, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. This is what stopped him in his tracks. So you got a guy, a wise person, who's operating his life in a way that is above reproach in every single way, that kind of person. And then you have a person over here just completely walks in darkness. They're bumping around. They don't know what they're doing, but the same event happens to all of them. What is that event? Look at verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? By the way, it's a lot of work to be wise. It's a lot of work. You don't, have to, you don't have to put in a lot of work to be dumb about things. But you do have to put in a lot of work to be wise about your life. But what he found so startling is that that fool over there and the person over here who tries to live wise, he said in my heart, he has said in my heart, this is also vanity. What is he talking about? What is the event that is going to happen to the foolish guy and to the wise guy? What is it? It's death. It's death. This is the first time in this book that death makes a strong appearance. Now, this is incredibly important because one of Solomon's points in this book is you can't really learn to live until you've considered death. You've considered the brevity of this life. 
You've considered the fact that you're not going to always be in this life. You're not going to always have the things of this life. That's the beginning of knowing how to live. And so here's the first time that he comes full stop. It's like the seatbelt is on and it clicks and the brakes are on and it's death that he's facing right in front of his car, so to speak, or his chariot. This last week, um, our family, part of our family, um, this last Monday, on Martin Luther King Day, we watched for the first time, we had not seen this before, um, we watched the movie Selma. Um, I highly commend that movie to you, though it is a strong PG-13 movie and not for children. I don't know that I consider myself to be naive, but I was shocked watching that movie. I was blown away. It was so shocking to me that we, you know, some movies where you're doing stuff, like you're texting or you're checking your phone, it was one of those movies where you couldn't do anything except be glued to the screen and feel like you didn't want to see what was happening. Now, let me draw out an illustration You would think, after the sacrifices that had been made by people in courageous ways, that racism would end. You would think, after all of what Martin Luther King did, regardless of what your opinion of him is in his personal life, he made some incredibly courageous stands that nobody else was doing, or at least doing to that level. You would think that after that happened, all of that, that all of a sudden we would come to our senses and there would be this kind of national equality that is embraced by everybody. Just a few months ago, somebody gave me, uh, somebody not, not here, somebody outside of here gave me a little book uh, by a guy named Tahanisi Coates called Between the World and Me. He's a black journalist in Baltimore writing a letter to his son. And that's what the book is. It's a letter to his son. And I, I read that book. And that's in the 2000s here, 2015, 16, 17, 18. I don't know when it was published. So, okay, you would think back what happened in the 60s. It kind of solved things. So then here we are, a guy writing a book, me, and the only way I know to look at this and read this is, is as a white man. I can't be anything else other than that. And I, again, I am shocked afresh that some of these things that are so in unjust or that someone is seeing something from a different perspective than, than the way I saw it and the way I assumed, you would think to yourself that you could make, you could make a strong stand and it's kind of solved once for all. And I think that if Solomon were here and he heard something like that, he would take that and he would say, folks, 
you take a man like Martin Luther King and you put him in the grave and you take a fool, someone who lived their life in ease, maybe even someone who opposed what this man was doing, and you put him in a grave, they could literally lie side by side with each other, a man of a courageous conviction and a guy who could care less, and death stops the both of them. It doesn't minimize the courageous stand. It just simply means what Solomon is saying here is that, is that death is going to stop you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Death is going to stop you. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. They say, well, Martin Luther King hasn't been long forgotten. He's got a big statue that people remember. I understand that, but the lessons, but the lessons, the the hard-fought lessons, how quickly they fade and how new things come up. How the wise dies just like the fool, verse 17. So here, here is what Solomon said, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. Now, let me be quick to say Solomon's point is not to say, don't try, who cares? That's not what he's saying. Don't try, who cares? Doesn't matter, death's going to stop you. Who cares? That's not what he's saying. His point is to say that we need to know that all is going to end and the grave will rob us of whatever life gave us because at that point, it stops for you and I. Author David Gibson says, the reality is that if death doesn't inform the way we live, then death is something we are pretending doesn't exist. Now, it seems like that's kind of a downer of a way to make a point in the book. Is there any hope? Is there any, is there any light? There is a glimmer of hope at the end of this book, and it's just a glimmer. It's just a glimmer because he's saying some things that are really dark, that are really heavy, that are really depressing, but he's going to give us our real first glimmer of hope. Here it comes. What he's doing in this chapter is he is saying, laughter, wine, not this, building cities, not this, Uh, doing better than the other kings around you, not this. Having a great business, not this. It's like, not this, not this, not this, not this. And then we get to these latter verses, and he's going to say this. This is it. Here it comes, verse 21. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. That's not the this yet. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And it's like he wants you, it's like he's taking you low. He's taking you to death, but he's going to take you down further till literally you can almost feel a thud. Boom! We're at the bottom now. And then verse 24. Here it is. Here's the light. There is nothing better Solomon, please give it to me. We're in such a dismal part. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. 
So what's the glimmer? What's the hope? When a person finally faces the reality of the shortness of life, he can begin, after understanding the brevity of life, only then to really enjoy life. Now, Solomon's going to tell us that God wants us to enjoy life. That's, that, he even brings God into it. I mean, in these latter verses, I mean, there's so much of this book where God isn't anywhere. And in these latter verses, God makes an appearance three times. So he's saying, this is what God wants us to do. What does it mean practically? When we stop seeing gifts as ultimate. When we stop seeing and squeezing the gifts to be the ultimate for us. When we stop squeezing family as the ultimate. You know, it's so easy to take our family as the ultimate gift of happiness. Should we expect some happiness for our family? Should we just be expecting our kids to disappoint us and be a bunch of losers? No. We should be expecting a level of happiness from family. But when we begin to squeeze the family and to expect the family to give us ultimate happiness, we are now using the gifts Instead of enjoying the gift, my job, the pleasures of life, demanding that I get something from them. This is what the prodigal son did. He was demanding to get pleasure from these things. What if our work was not just to make a living or to help us to have something to do profitably and gainfully? What if our work was for so much more so that we would be faithful, we would be contributing to society, so that we could be generous? What if our marriage was more than just not being lonely or having physical satisfaction? What if marriage was so much more than that as a picture of the gospel, as a way to serve other people as a team? Ecclesiastes 2, verses 4 through 6, I read them already, but go back to them because I want to make a point about them. He said, I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards, I made myself gardens and parks, I planted them, all kinds of fruit trees. Made myself pools and forests of growing trees. Can I ask you a question? What does that sound like? Hint, hint, let's go back to Genesis. Who was developing things like that? Who was the first person to develop life like that? It was Adam. I mean, Adam is developing and doing this and he's doing that until sin came into the world. And then we see the next person doing that is Cain. And he's doing it for himself. Adam wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it as a way to glorify God. And I guarantee Adam got up every day looking forward to some new endeavor. So that was a way he could worship his God by that thing. And he enjoyed it. He enjoyed doing fruit trees. He enjoyed doing agriculture. He enjoyed building stuff. Not for himself, but for God. But when sin came into the world... There is, this, there is this heart that uses the gifts for me, my opinion, my worth, what I get out of it. And if I'm not getting something out of it, I'm going to do something else or I'm going to demand my money back. Except this time it's from God. We are the dependent creature. and He is the life-giving creator. Solomon is showing us that God wants us to enjoy the gifts of life. He wants us to enjoy our lives. He didn't want us to be walking around like an Eeyore all the time. He doesn't want us to do this. 
Well, how do we not do that? We have got to come to the point where we've accepted that death is the great leveler and you've only got one life. And it isn't to get out of this life everything you can get out of this life because once you're done, buddy, you're done. It is to orient yourself to the God of life who you will face someday. And you can have the confidence of facing Him joyfully if you know Christ is your Savior, not having used life, but having enjoyed life. Because Jesus Christ was the one who died on the cross for you so that you could have eternal life. I think some of us, even as Christians, we selfishly enjoy life. It, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, things just stink down here, but I got that mansion up over the glory. And then I go to a passage like John chapter 14 and say, I don't know you're going to have a mansion, dude. And it's like, oh, he just destroyed my whole thing. You know, I was hoping for this big house like Bill Gates, you know. And it's kind of like, well, I can't have these things down here because I give to my church, but I can have them up there. What are we using heaven for then? Our enjoyment. <laughs> kind of stinks down. No way. God wants us to enjoy life here. But we've got to come full stop to recognizing that death will claim all of us. But you can be ready to meet death if you know Jesus Christ and you are rightly related to how he desires for us to use the gifts here. Shall we pray? Their heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. If you're here and you're not sure you're a Christian, we close this service in prayer. We're not going to embarrass anyone, but maybe what you need to do is to call out to God this morning in your heart, like Solomon said, in his own heart, and to pray and to ask God for Jesus. It's best you know how. God, I want Jesus. And you can pray here in just a moment when others are praying. Christian, maybe you need to pray this morning and say, you know what, I'm, you know what, by the way, everybody struggles using the gifts to satisfy themselves. Everybody. This isn't a, you know, some do and some don't. Everybody does. Let the Spirit of God touch on your life where you've been demanding more from the gift rather than enjoying the gift and worshiping God. <laughs> that you need to confess that. You've been expecting way too much from the family. Too much in that. Instead of enjoying, you talk to God. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to let you talk to God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll be finished. God, in the quietness of this moment, help us to be oriented toward you rightly. I pray that you would help us to bring ourselves to a point of confession where we're expecting more from the gifts than you intended because, Jesus, you are the ultimate satisfier. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to enjoy these lives that you've given us in the way that you intended and to repent of ways where we're seeking for the enjoyment and not you. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.